This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Hank Wesselman. Hank is a paleoanthropologist and a shamanic practitioner whose expeditions have been featured in several Time magazine cover stories. Since 1971, Hank has conducted research with an international group of scientists exploring eastern Africa's Great Rift Valley in search of answers to the mystery of human origins. Previously, he has authored a series of books chronicling the tales of altered state experiences that began spontaneously out in the bush of Africa. His most recent work, with Sounds True, is called The Re-Enchantment, A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder, which is Hank's offering for us to find a way to reclaim the wonder and hope that will give meaning to our lives. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Hank and I spoke about the personal oversoul and how we each, in his experience, have three distinct souls, including an immortal aspect of ourselves that reports in, if you will, to our personal oversoul. We talked about Hank's experiences with Sophia, what he refers to as the world soul and how this world soul communicates with him. Hank also shared why he places so much emphasis in his book, The Reenchantment, on connecting with nature, and how he believes the depth and reverence we have for nature is actually a critical factor in our survival as a species. And finally, for anyone interested in following a shamanic path, Hank shares three qualities that he looks for in a shamanic teacher. Here's my conversation with Hank Wesselman. Hank, you've written a new book called The Re-Enchantment. And to begin with, I'd love to just talk about that title. It implies that we were once enchanted, but then we lost it, and now we have a chance to become re-enchanted. So tell me what you mean by that. Well, when I was a little boy, my parents and I lived in an apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City, and we used to go to the park, my mother and I, on a daily basis. And I remember as a, as when I was about three or four years old, looking up at the trees in Central Park and having this deep insight that the trees were living beings like myself, but they were different. And then I looked down at the pigeons that were mobbing each other on the sidewalks for the breadcrumbs my mother was spreading out for them. And I realized that they were living beings like myself, but they were different. And then there was the squirrel. <laughs> there was a, it was just your average everyday gray squirrel 
But the squirrel, I remember coming down and, and leaping onto the side of my stroller and looking deeply into my eyes with that black liquid eye for one very long moment. And my mother gave me a peanut. And being naive, I held out the peanut in my trembling little fingers, and the squirrel snatched the peanut and fled up the tree where it shredded the peanut and then uh, returned for more. But, you know, this was like being enchanted and being enchanted by none other than Mother Nature herself through the uh, a rather hyper-furry ambassador, the squirrel. And, of course, then there was the zoo. There's a zoo in Central Park. And my mother took me there on a regular basis. And the imagery from my childhood still remains to me to this day. You know, the seals cohorting in their outside pond, always... Uh, accompanied by the odor of raw fish. And then there was the hippopotamus and the crocodile and the birds in their aviaries. And then one day I saw this animal of incomparable beauty. It was a leopard, and it was in a cage. And as the leopard paced in ever-tightening circles, I was aware of the fact that within this beautiful spotted body, there was a great will that lay imprisoned. Now, of course, I didn't understand what that meant, but something happened uh, in those moments. And as my mind drifted into the dream, into the daydream, I found myself in a place of blueness. And I've written about this in The Reenchantment, a place of blueness where there were no bars. And I was there with the leopard. And for one very long moment, the leopard looked into my soul with his green gaze and something happened. Now, in retrospect, I reach for it, but I can't grasp it. I can't grasp it. You know, something happened, and I, I cannot remember it. But it was like I had been enchanted once again by my connection with the animal world, with the natural world. And the leopard became kind of like my imaginary friend, kind of like Calvin and Hobbes, Remember this wonderful cartoon strip, Calvin and Hobbes? Mm -hmm. Calvin was the little boy, and he had a stuffed animal named Hobbes. But for Calvin, Hobbes was a real being. And they would have adventures and do things together. It was kind of like that. It was kind of like that. And um, I realized when I was a little boy that these, these connections with the natural world enchanted me. And then, of course, as I grew up, the enchantment uh, withdrew, but the mystery remained. And when I was out in nature, when I was on the university campus, when I was at the beach, you know, I had a job as a lifeguard on the south shore of Long Island in the Hamptons, and I was looking at the moon over the ocean, you know, I was aware of the fact that there was something. I came to think of it as the mystery. And I, I didn't really know how to describe it, but I was aware of the fact that it was aware of me, whatever it is. But it's elusive, because I think that's the nature of the mystery, to remain elusive. And it always remained just out there, you know, just out there where we couldn't quite grasp it. But in retrospect, and today, uh, my feeling is that it's the nature of the mystery to draw us forward, toward our destiny, towards the path on which we walk, to become that which we're destined to become. Then in Africa, all right, <laughs> that's when the re-enchantment began. 
as you know, and my readership knows, I'm a paleoanthropologist uh, who was educated in the zoology department initially at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and then I did my research and my doctoral work at Berkeley, and I was drawn into connection with an expedition working in East Africa with the Leakey family, the famous Leakey family, and Don Johansson, the guy who would find Lucy, and so forth and so on. I would be in a safari camp for three or four months at a time, living in a tent, you know, out in these surreal desert landscapes, excavating fossils, doing survey work, doing geology work. And I began to have these very strange experiences. And I've recorded some of these in the reenchantment. These were experiences that happened when I was very much awake during the daytime. And I remember one particular experience. I was excavating a site with three African men. Two of them were Wakamba tribesmen from Kenya, and one was a Dasnich tribal man from southwestern Ethiopia from the Omo Valley named Atiko. And people had told me that he was a shaman. Now, in those days, being an anthropologist, I had some idea of what shamans are. And people told me that he was a crocodile whisperer. He could communicate with the great crocodiles that lived in the Omo River and could swim across the river, and they wouldn't eat him. Now, this was quite something, because these crocodiles were as big as dinosaurs. Well, one day, I was out in these desert landscapes, excavating a site where there were fossil proto-humans and, and bovids and lagomorphs and gazelles and crocodiles and fish and turtles and all sorts of things. And I'd begun to have this ongoing feeling that I was being observed by something. Now, this is a kind of creepy feeling because often we would be hundreds of yards from where the car was parked, and there were leopards and lions and hyenas and buffalo there, all of which are dangerous. So this, this feeling that you're being watched by something is, is concern-making, to say the least. Well, one day, uh, we were just about to go back to camp for lunch, and I, this feeling came over me very, very strongly. And so I stood up very carefully and began to look around under my bush hat. The Wakamba men were loading up the equipment into the Land Rover to go back to camp for lunch, but Atiko, the shaman, was looking at something off to my left. And so very slowly I slid my eyes in that direction, and I saw something. It was big. It was as big as I am, and it was about six feet off the ground. And as I looked directly at it, it was though whatever it was stepped through a tear in the fabric of the air and then zipped it closed from the other side, leaving a momentary wrinkle that straightened out and was gone. Now, you know, I'm looking at this and thinking, you know, maybe it's time to go back to Nairobi and have a milkshake and a hamburger. Uh, you know, I realized that I'd been out in the bush for several months and these these strange experiences were going on for me on an ongoing basis. And so um, I looked at the shaman, and he was watching me. Hmm. He was watching me. So in Swahili, I could speak some Swahili by this time, I looked at him and said, Atiko, Kwanini, what is that? And he gave me this long measuring look, and then he smiled. And he pointed at exactly the place where it had been. 
and said a single word in Swahili. He said the word shaitani. That's the Swahili word for spirit. Now, in those days, I worshipped solely at the altar of science. You know, I wasn't the least bit interested in the soul. I was not the least bit interested in Buddhism or meditation. That would all come later. But, you know, I wasn't sure I believed in spirits. But that experience and others that I had, which I've also recorded in the reenchantment, these experiences haunted me for years. And then about 10 years later, I was in Berkeley finishing up my doctoral work in anthropology on my research project. And a friend of mine called me up and said, listen, there's this anthropologist coming and he's going to do a workshop in shamanism. His name is Michael Harner. You're going to love it, Hank. It's your type of thing. Well, I'd never heard of Michael Harner before. But, you know, there was something about those experiences in Africa that nagged me. And so I decided to go to the workshop. And there I was in this workshop with the great Michael Harner himself, beating his drum. We're all lying on our backs in this high school gymnasium in the dark, supposedly making shamanic journeys into the other world to connect with spirits. And as part of the weekend, Harner had us team up with somebody who we didn't already know. And the goal was for each of us to find a helping spirit for the other. I found myself teamed up with this very attractive, slender young woman with long, dark hair and dark eyes named Sandra Engerman. And Sandra Engerman at that time was a graduate student in counseling psychology at the CIIS in San Francisco. So she agreed to do a shamanic journey on my behalf. And so there I am, lying on my back in the dark, next to this strange woman, listening to Harner beating his drum. And, you know, there's a side of me which is just skeptical to the max. I'm thinking, you know, this is all New Age woo-woo. And then suddenly Sandy sits up next to me in the dark, looks down at me with his intense look. And you know Sandra Ingerman, so you know how she can look intense. And she leans over and places her mouth on my chest and blows into my heart, not once, but several times. And something happened. Something happened. Something elusive happened. I could feel it. Then she sat me up and blew into the top of my head. And then after waiting for the drumming to stop, she turned to me and she told me the story of how her conscious awareness had journeyed into the lower world of the dreaming of nature. And there she had found a being who claimed it was one of my old friends. <laughs> and it wanted to come back into my life once again. And then, much to my astonishment, she described the leopard, who I thought of as the leopard man, because sometimes hmm. he'd stand up on his hind legs like a human being. And I was just stunned, because there was no way that she could have known about my childhood imaginary friend and in fact, I hadn't thought about this friend in maybe over 20 years. But that was also the beginning of my reenchantment. And the rest of my, my story, my strange story, began to unfold by degrees. And it was shortly after that that I moved to Kona with my wife and our children in the early 1980s. And I've recorded what happened to me in my Spirit Walker trilogy of these spontaneous visions in which I was drawn into connection with a man, a man who lives in the future. I mean, that's what makes it really sticky. And if I've got this right, and I believe I do, 
This man lives approximately 5,000 years after the collapse of Western civilization, and he, in all likelihood, may in fact be one of my descendants, one of my descendant selves, which would be part of the causality for the connection between us. And between the two of us, over the next 20 years or so, these extraordinary books, Spirit Walker, Medicine Maker, and Vision Seeker, emerged. And they've been very widely read. Spirit Walker has been translated into 14 languages abroad. Okay, Hank. Now I have to ask you something here. I have to interrupt for a moment. So here you are. You're talking to a figure in these spontaneous visions who is potentially a descendant of yours, 5,000 years in the future, after the collapse of Western civilization. Does this exist as a potentiality in your mind? It's a potential. Or, since you had this experience, we're sure Western civilization will collapse, and these visions are, you know, an accurate reflection of how it's going to be 5,000 years from now? Well, this is a very good question. And, of course, there are no guarantees. My sense is that this man and I, if he is actually a descendant, a descendant self, I believe that these visions, these experiences, reveal something interesting about the two of us as incarnating souls. I believe that, let's say, part of the contract... You know, each one of us has a contract. It's kind of like a cosmic contract when we come into life. And what's written on that contract is held by a council of wise elder spirits who debrief us when we come out of life and who brief us once again when we come back into life. And I believe that the contract that this man and I share is that we would come into life, me and my slice of time, him in his slice of time, and create a timeline between the two of us. And so what that means is that if our world as it exists today goes to hell in a handbasket, and it could because it's known that virtually all civilization states eventually collapse, it means that his slice of time already exists. It's already out there. And so this is a, a kind of guarantee, isn't it, that... Uh, we will go on, and life will continue, and our travels across eternity will continue to draw us forward toward that that we're destined to become. It's a very strange story, the Spirit Walker story. And, you know, people have asked me, you know, if, if uh, this future time is assured, uh, and whether our our civilization will collapse. And my, my uh, answer tends to be, look, you know, if we continue to do business as usual, and we seem to be doing that, the world that we're walking straight into is the world that I've described in the Spirit Walker books. And people like this. They like the world that I've described. In fact, they perceive it as preferable to the one in which we live today. And yet, everything that we take so much for granted, our high technology, our BMWs, Starbucks, our cities, our freeways, it's all gone. It's all gone. And the people in that time live in a kind of Neolithic future in which there is no technology, in which they've gone back to the ancient lifeway of being 
merged with the land of being, you know, farmers and fisher people, marine uh, communities on the coast, farming communities inland. It's a time of balance. It's a time of harmony. Interestingly, Tammy, these people in the future live somewhere on the western coast of North America. They're of Hawaiian ancestry who arrived roughly um, seven generations before this man, Nainua, whose name is Nainua, before he was born. And although they are Hawaiian by ancestry, they're actually living somewhere around the edge of what they call the Inland Sea. And the Inland Sea appears to be a marine inundation in the Central Valley of California. And California itself doesn't look anything like it does today. It looks more like Costa Rica or the Amazon with tremendous rainforests and jaguars and iguanas and crocodiles and parrots and monkeys and so forth. How do I know it's California? Well, that's revealed in this in this strange story. I haven't really talked about that story in the reenchantment, but the reenchantment has allowed me to get into my field notes. When I was in the field in Ethiopia and Kenya and Tanzania, working as an anthropologist, I always kept a field journal in which I would make notes on a daily basis of my experiences. And so a lot of the experiences in the reenchantment record unpublished uh, accounts of some of the very odd things that have happened, some of the visionary experiences that have happened. Are there any of these that particularly appeal to you, just out of curiosity? Well, to be honest, what I'm really interested in is the picture, if you will, the architecture of the unseen world that your visionary experiences seem to point to. And that's what I'd like to focus some of our conversation on, if that's okay. And I think some of the intense visionary experiences will come to light in that conversation. For example, you talk okay. about something called the personal oversoul, that we each have a personal oversoul. And I wanted to understand more what you mean by that and what your inner experiences are that give you confidence that we have a personal oversoul? Well, this is a very interesting question. Um, you know, I'm aware of the fact, having been involved with the Zen Buddhist tradition for, oh, maybe 15 years, that the self is perceived to be an illusion in Buddhism. Through my experiences with the shamanic tradition, <laughs> this has been revealed to me to be a very interesting theory. Unfortunately, it's an error. There is indeed a self, and in fact, there are two selves. There's our physically embodied self here, and our spiritual over-self there that lives forever in the dream. Through my connection with the Kohona Halemakua, uh, he was the Kohona Nui here in the islands, and uh, my last book with you guys, The Bowl of Light, was about my relationship with him. We talked about the fact that each one of us is, uh, is a complex made up of three distinct souls. There's the physical soul, our embodied soul, which we receive from our mother and our father through the gametes, through the sex cells that come from the mother and the father, you know, which includes all ancestral imprints. In the same way that there's a, um, a genetic 
complex that comes from the mother and from the father that comes together to create a new pattern. There's also a psychic energetic complex that comes from the mother and the father. It's understood in many, many societies, and I've talked about this before, that when we come into life, each one of us is sourced from the dream into this world by our oversoul, the immortal aspect of ourself that does not die. And the oversoul divides itself, sends in a seed of its light, which is kind of like a hologram in the sense that it contains within itself everything which is recorded in the oversoul field. And as we emerge from a mother's body and take our first breath, we are ensouled by this spiritual essence that comes into us. Now, this spiritual essence, the first thing it discovers is that there's another soul already in place. This is the physical soul that we got from our mother and our father. And so the first goal of this, this uh, spiritual oversoul is to achieve a successful relationship with this physical soul. And then between the two of them, the physical soul and the spiritual soul, the third soul comes into being in response to life as we live it. And this is our egoic mental soul, the aspect of ourself that thinks, analyzes, integrates, makes decisions, practices discernment. It's the source of our intentionality. It's the source of our creative imagination. And in a sense, uh, it's the aspect of ourself that tells the physical soul what needs to be done. The physical soul is kind of like the enabler, the source of our emotions and feelings, the operator of the physical body, the inner healer that people talk about, the interface between ourself and the other, and the other being the other world. That gateway into the other world exists within the physical soul. So there has to be a right relationship between the mental soul and the physical soul for things to work well. And the oversoul, the oversoul maintains its connection with us during life, and it serves us as the source of our intuition, inspiration, and it communicates with us best by sending us dreams and visions and ideas and slips of the tongue in response to our need to know. This is explored in some detail in the book, The Bowl of Light, The Oversoul. So the Oversoul is our heavenly spiritual self there, and the embodied soul is our physically embodied self here, and they're in a co-creative relationship. Because at the end of life, if I've got this right, and I believe I do, when the physical body dies, the entire soul complex, consisting of the three souls, and the energy body detaches when we release our last breath. And it goes through the energetic psychic level into the dream, where it spends time in the bardos, which Buddhists know a great deal about, until it releases its connections to this world here, and it ascends to return home, whereupon everything that we have done, felt, and endured in life is archived into our oversold field, which grows, increases, and becomes more in response to what we've done and become. This is what I mean by the co-creative relationship. The ego is particularly interesting to me in this regard because I think it was Robert Monroe who observed in his book, Journeys Out of the Body, 
that this whole New Age preoccupation with getting rid of your ego or dropping your ego is a tremendous error because he said we actually embody to develop an ego. The ego is our chooser. It's our decision maker. It's our creative ability. And by developing an egoic self here, we take those qualities and abilities back into our oversoul there at the end of life, which is in the process of becoming a creator being. This is something we explore in, in the uh, in the reenchantment. I think I have a little chapter on the oversoul and its relationship with its own teacher that could be called the spirit guide. Here's one of the questions I have for you, just to make this very real for people, Hank, which is, you say in the reenchantment again and again, what's important is direct revelation. What's important is your own experience, not hearing teachings like this and saying, you know, I believe them, but knowing in your own experience what's true. So how did you come to see the personal oversoul in your own life? Was there some initiatory experience for you? Let me say that I'm aware of it all the time. I sometimes ask students in my training workshops, how many of you guys talk to yourself in the shower? And about half the room will put up their hands. How many of you talk to yourselves when you're driving alone in the car? More than half the room will put up their hands. And I'll look at them and say, who are you talking to? And they say, well, we're talking to ourselves." And I'm so, of course you are. But which self are you talking to? Your physically embodied self here? or your spiritual self there. You see, this seed of light that resides within us, if I've got this right, and I believe I do, it resides within our hearts. This is why the Buddhists call the heart the gateless gate. This is the gateway into the other world. And because of that seed of light that resides within our heart, it's kind of like an open microphone to this complex, the oversoul complex, that I think of as the guys upstairs. I think of it as the guys upstairs because archived into my oversoul field are all of my former selves, all of my former lives. And they're all very much aware of me. They all have a very vested interest in my well-being. And in my shamanic journey work, when I connect with my oversoul field, I will invite my oversoul to send in a representative into a particular place of vision which I created for myself in the middle world of dream. And inevitably, it's one of my former selves who is walking on a path very similar to the one I'm walking on right now, who comes to advise me. And we have these extraordinary conversations, many of which are recorded. So the oversoul is an aspect of the direct revelatory experience, which I simply stumbled into. I mean, you know, as I pointed out in the re-enchantment, you know, I'm not one of those people who sat for decades at the knees of the wisdom masters hoping for visions and transcendent experiences, practicing meditation and yoga. It just happened for me. And this is in alignment with the fact that this ability to access, to expand my conscious awareness and connect with the other world, it appears to run in my family. This is something I've talked about in my other books, specifically in in the Spirit Walker trilogy. So, you know, what really defines the shaman and the shaman's path of direct revelation 
You know, there's a lot of confusion in the Western world between the kind of work that shamans do and the kind of work that medicine people do. And this confusion exists, in my opinion, because every shaman is a medicine person, but not all medicine people are shamans. In fact, it's been my experience living with indigenous people in Africa and experiencing American Indian people in North America and Central America and South America. It's been my experience that most of the medicine people I've encountered are not shamans, but they fulfill social roles more like those of priests or priestesses. What do I mean by this? It means that they serve their communities as ceremonial ritual leaders. And they do their main work here in this world. They may also have a great deal of knowledge about the healing arts, the plant medicines, massage, physical medicine, but they do their main work here. The shaman is an individual who discovers, sometimes in childhood like myself, or sometimes in adulthood like myself, when I stumbled back into it again, that they have the ability to go into trance very easily. And in this respect, trance is not an unconscious experience. It's more of a superconscious experience. And in that trance experience, they're able to read geography. They're able to remove their um, conscious awareness into the dream world, into this other world that the indigenous people call the spirit world. And there they make an extraordinary discovery. This dream world is inhabited. It's inhabited by transpersonal forces that the traditional people call spirits. And there are different kinds of spirits. You know, there are elemental spirits who are earthbound. There are nature spirits, animal spirits, and plant spirits. There are the spirits of ancestors, the spirits of the dead. There are the higher organizing intelligences, um, some of which are called the angelic forces. And these spiritual dimensions appear to be organized in very much the same way from the perspective of shamans all over the world. You know, the shaman is a universal figure found in some form in every culture in the world. And the interesting thing, Tammy, is that all of these shamans see the other world in very much the same way. They see it as organized into three great cosmic regions. There are the worlds below this one, which they call the lower worlds, which are the dreaming of nature. There are the worlds all around us all the time, which could be called the middle world of dream, which is also where the bardo worlds are, where we go when we make transition. And then there are the upper worlds above us, where the higher organizing intelligences reside, some of whom serve humanity as teachers and advisors. And the Oversoul is one of those higher in our organizing intelligences. In fact, it's our own personal organizing intelligence with whom we are in relationship for the long term. And as we grow, increase, and become more, it grows, increases, and become more in response. This is what I mean by a co-creative relationship. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us 
go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you also speak about something in the re-enchantment, the world soul, the world soul herself. And you tell a pretty astonishing story of how you met and encountered an experience of the world soul. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. I could. Did you like that story? I did, Hank. You're a terrific storyteller. (laughs) Thank you for the compliment. I'll try to live up to it. (laughs) The Gnostics of antiquity were the university professors of the ancient world for a thousand years before they were exterminated by the emerging Christians. The Gnostics had this incredible myth in which at the center of every galaxy is a dark region. We call them black holes. And these dark regions were called the Pleroma. These dark regions were believed to be inhabited by creator beings that the Gnostics called the Ions. And the Ions are, you know, great beings who are sourced by the source itself that they call the originator. And the entire organization and maintenance of each galaxy is governed by these godlike beings that reside at the galactic center. One of these godlike beings was the one called the Sophia. The Greeks called her Gaia after the teachings of of the mystics of their time and the mystery schools of their time and place. The Sophia was the one, according to the Gnostics, who dreamed the dream of the Anthropos, of humanity. And she fell in love with her dream. And so she did something extraordinary. She left the safety of the Pleroma, and she flowed out into the arms of chaos as a river of conscious light. She came into relationship with a star, with our star, and she solidified so that this beautiful planet Earth is her physical body, and her spiritual essence, her soul, resides in the skin of life that surrounds this planet. She's the life force embodied who breathes essence and wonder into ourselves and into the world. Now, the Gnostics had this incredible myth of the Sophia, and I was given a book years ago by Michael Kraft at the um, Omega Institute, a book written by John Lash called Not in His Image, in which he explores a great deal of what's recorded in the Nag Hammadi texts, which were discovered in Egypt, I believe in 1945 or 1946, which preserved some of the teachings of these ancient Gnostics before they were all gone. And he talks about the ions, and he talks about the Sophia. And I was quite struck by his his uh, information. So I made contact with him through his website. And after the initial sort of guarded connections, I guess you could call them, he realized that I was for real. And he went to my website and he saw the books that I had published and so forth and so on. And in our discussions, which came to an end shortly thereafter, 
he revealed to me that he had given the Sophia a name, a new name. And this is in alignment with the fact that Sophia, who lives in the biosphere, she loves innovation. And this is very much in alignment with the evolutionary process when you think about it. You know, I think it was Charles Darwin who observed that that God must have had a a wonderful uh, perception or appreciation of beetles, because there are over 250,000 different species of beetles. I mean, this is species diversity to the max. And there seems to be this built-in universal impulse within the universal process toward diversity, towards ever-increasing diversification. So he gave, he came into relationship with the Sophia through his meditations, and he gave her a new name to which he responds. And so he gave me that name. And, you know, I was quite struck by this. It's a name in Sanskrit, and I wondered why he chose Sanskrit. He said, well, I could have chosen any language at, at, at will, but this is a, an ancient language. And so in the connections that I've had with the Sophia, I decided to try to use this name to see if I could get her to respond. And so I recorded a couple of stories in the reenchantment about, you know, my connections with the Sophia in which I achieved a meditative shamanic state of consciousness and allowed myself to expand. And then I turned my attention toward her and uttered her name in a breathy whisper as though I was talking to my lover in the midst of a joyous marital encounter. Ha <laughs> ha. And she responded. But it wasn't like I was face-to-face with a winged superhuman. It was more like natural process. It was more like natural process. You know, for example, I remember being at the Brightonbush Hot Springs Conference Center in Northern Oregon in, in July, and it was just breathlessly hot. Uh, this uh, complex is, lives in the great forests of northern Oregon. The trees are 100 feet high, a beautiful river, there are hot springs. You know, it's very tribal. And I teach there three or four times a year. And I remember walking down this road through this tunnel of trees in this breathless heat. And suddenly I stopped. And I looked this way and I looked that way and I was alone. So I closed my eyes. And I expanded my conscious awareness. This is a very easy thing to do once you learn how to do it. And then I uttered her name three times. And then I waited. And suddenly, up through this tunnel of trees came this wind. And this wind was just ice cold. I mean, it was just like as cold as the north wind. And instantly I was surrounded by this wind, which was blowing my hair this way and that way. Rocks were flying. The dust was flying. And then suddenly it was gone. I took that as a response. You know, there's no way this cold wind could have approached me on this breathlessly hot day. And then there was the event that happened at the beach here in Kona, where I went down to the ocean on a day when the ocean was completely flat. And I did the same thing. I accessed the shamanic state of consciousness, and then I extended my awareness towards her, and uttered her name three times, and then waited. And then three times, a wave came and broke right at my feet, and then the ocean was flat again. See, I took that as a response. 
I believe, Tammy, that these kinds of experiences can actually happen to us all the time, but most of us miss it because we're not paying attention or we don't believe it's possible. So, you know, the Sophia, I remember there's another aspect of the Sophia that I didn't talk about in the reenchantment, that sometimes when I'm drumming, for example, for a group, I will turn my attention in the direction of the Sophia and utter her name three times and then wait. And you know what it feels like if you take an orange from the refrigerator and you press it against your face? Yeah. I get this strange sensation of something cold and sort of porous that presses itself against my face. And I think it's the Sophia. Or I'll have the experience where suddenly one nostril, not both, but one nostril, will slowly start to drip in response to my connection with her. It's a very strange experience. But then, you know, I have a very strange life. That's why the subtitle of my book is A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. I'm curious here because I can imagine someone who's listening and they're saying, you know, Hank Wesselman has a great imagination. You know, what a great storyteller. You know, no wonder his trilogy, Spirit Walker, about his visionary experiences, sold so many books. This guy can really tell a story. Here I am, though, and I want more wonder in my life, and not just wonder, I'd like to have confidence in the existence of my personal oversoul, so that, as Hank described, when there's physical death, I'll have confidence the way that Hank has in a continuity of experience and a reconsolidating and sharing of wisdom with my personal oversoul. I want to meet Sophia, the world soul herself. I'd like that. What do you say to that person who's listening, who's open-minded, but, you know, wants their own experience? Well, some things have to be believed to be seen. I mean, that's a kind of glib way to put it. But, you know, I think the first step is to really understand the nature of the all that is. And that's part of the goal of the shamanic path. It was Hale Makur who said, you know, the first two questions we have to address is, who are you? You know, and this hinges directly on what we, what we talked about in terms of the three souls, including the oversoul, the immortal aspect of the self that does not die the aspect of the self that reveals that we are all immortals traveling across time and that there is continuity after the death of the physical body. The second question we have to ask is, where are you? Where are you on your path? Where are you on the path of your destiny? And in order to understand where you are, Halimakur would say, you have to look back at where you began to really have a, a, a perception of how far you've come. And this will help reveal to you where you are at this particular time. So in terms of the Sophia, um, I described a connection with the Sophia in the book, The Bowl of Light, when the Kahuna Nui Makua took me up onto the side of the great mountain of vision called Mauna Kea. We didn't go to the top. We went up on the side 
where there's a particular cinder crater. And the cinder crater is shaped like a bowl. And it's very steep at the top, and it sort of evens out at the bottom. And he told me that this cinder crater was a direct entryway into the lower world of dream. And he encouraged me, first of all, to walk around the rim of this crater three times. And this is a story which I recorded in that chapter in in the Bowl of Light called Speaking Woman, because this place is called Ha'iwahine, which means speaking woman. Well, when I went around the first time, he said, oh, you don't have to go any further. I've been told that you can go down. But I had to do it one more time to confirm something which I'd experienced. But when I went down to this crater and I got to the bottom, it was a blazingly hot day, blazingly hot day. The sun was just I was like I was being cooked in a convection oven in the bottom of this crater. And I would say it was probably about maybe 150, 200 feet deep. I expanded my conscious awareness and invited the soul of the world, the spirit of this place, to come to me there. And what happened was very slowly, the crater filled with mist. It filled with fog. This white, murky, milky radiance, this mist filled with light. And there was a voice. And the voice told me things. Now, I didn't record what that voice told me in the bowl of light because, you know, these are kind of like private experiences. But, you know, I remember saying in that book and in the reenchantment as well, do you remember that story of the uh, prophet Elijah in the, I think it was the 9th century B.C., having a meeting with the angel of the Lord? It's in the Bible. Mm Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that Elijah didn't see this angel as a winged superhuman. He perceived it as a radiant white light filled with a voice that communicated with him. That's the Sophia. That's the soul of our world. And, you know, she is very concerned for us in my experience because she's the one who dreamed humanity into this into existence here. You know, the shamans understand that everything that exists here in this world was dreamed here. Everything that exists here has a dream aspect in the dream world. So, you know, all the trees, all the birds, all the humans, we all have a dream aspect in the other world. And I remember hearing shamans in many different societies in Africa. I've lived with, not visited, but lived with over 12 different traditional tribal groups of people in Africa during my checkered career as an anthropologist. And I remember hearing something from them, and if I were to sort of summarize it, it would come out something like this. The animals and the plants own the wild places. The humans own the cities and the towns. But the shamans own the air. Now, what does this mean? Well, of course, the shamanic tradition involves the phenomenon which is known as soul flight. You know, we've got many different religious practitioners of many different kinds on the planet today, but only the shaman, sanctified by their initiations and furnished with their guardian spirits, only the shaman can venture into the mystical geography of the spirit world, and they do it through the phenomenon of soul flight. 
This is what I mean by direct experience. And when I began to have these experiences, there was no looking back. I'm sure it's given all my academic colleagues real pause for thought. <laughs> now, Hank, one of the things I want to ask you about with the re-enchantment is you're not just referring to personal re-enchantment. I mean, you talked about it at first in terms of your early childhood experiences of wonder in nature and having a leopard man be your invisible best friend. But you're really also referring to it in terms of our collective potential to be re-enchanted. And in the book, you point to the fact that if this doesn't happen, that it doesn't bode well for our very survival as a species. And I know you have a research specialty in the area of climate change as well as evolution. So I wonder if you can talk about that, our collective re-enchantment. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the ideas that comes forward very strongly in this book is the idea that I really feel that our collective survival as well as our collective thriving will involve not only a re-enchantment of ourselves, but a re-enchantment of our relationship with the natural world. Because that's where the truth is. You know, everything that makes up our technological Western world is questionable. But everything that makes up nature is true. Nature is a complex library. And if you know how to read the symbols, it's all there. It's all there. All of the lessons that we need to learn, all of the qualities and abilities that we need to develop within ourselves. And so I really perceive part of our thriving and surviving across time as a kind of re-enchantment of our relationship with nature. And to me, this is very important. This is very important in terms of my own experience with climate change. You know, that's what I do as a scientist, and I'm well published in that field. You know, that's what my PhD dissertation was based on, a sudden change in the climate where we went from a greenhouse world into an ice age world. And in the tropics, things got very dry and the great forest dried up, and we had to make a living differently. This is when we began to pillage and plunder big carnivore game kills, and we began to include animal protein in our diet on an ongoing basis, because although all the fruiting trees around rivers and lakes were, were gone, there is food out on the savanna grasslands in Africa, and it comes in a very concentrated form. Meat, and I know that the vegetarians may regard this as scouts, but the fact is that in the evolutionary record, the minute human beings start to eat meat, the brain starts to expand. And as we moved into an ecological niche which involved ambush hunting of big game animals, our brain tripled its size in a million years. And, you know, there's a direct feedback relationship between animal protein and the development of this large brain. This all happened in response to a dietary shift, which all happened in response to a climatic shift. And we're now at that stage where we appear to be going back into the greenhouse world once again. And this is very important. We have to really plan what to do. 
I don't think we can reverse what's been set into motion at this stage. I think it's done. What we have to do now is adapt to the changes that are about to befall us. And as I pointed out in the reenchantment, there's a very good chance that the sea level will rise between five and nine meters in the next 50 years. That will inundate every coastal city in the world. Every coastal city in the world. And if the big ice sheets on the continent of Antarctica melt down and 90% of the world's fresh water supply is there, sea levels will rise approximately 100 meters, or let's say 350, 390 feet. This is very, very serious. And the world that I've described as Noah's world is really a greenhouse world. It's after the greenhouse warming has, has happened. So understanding nature's cycles is very, very important because the Sophia, Mother Nature, does not negotiate. Although businessmen and attorneys and psychologists say everything is negotiable, that's a very nice theory. Unfortunately, Mother Nature does not negotiate. She responds, and the response has already begun. So this is sort of an underlying message which I sneak into all of my books, and I think I included some information about that in the reenchantment as well. But I really feel that our salvation, our salvation really lies in the reenchantment of our relationship with nature. And that's where I find hope for the future. Now, you said these changes, the climate changes that we're experiencing, are already so far advanced that we need to adapt. What did you mean by that when you said we need to adapt? Well, we can't reverse what's already been set into motion. We've gone beyond the tipping point. You know, we've known about these environmental changes for 30, 35 years. And, of course, this information has been suppressed by our politicians and our corporate community because sea level rise is not going to be good for business. You know, the old Black Elk, everybody, I think, has read Black Elk Speaks, Uh, The old black elk was probably the last real traditional Indian. Uh, He passed about 60 years ago, and before he passed, he dictated his second book to another anthropologist named Joseph Espes Brown. Epis, maybe. Epis Brown. It's called The Sacred Pipe, The Seven Great Rituals of the Oglala Sioux. And in this book, in the introduction, he describes... White Buffalo Calf Woman, the legend of White Buffalo Woman, and how she gave the sacred pipe to the people. And I think I recorded some of this in the book I wrote with Sandra Ingerman, Awakening to the Spirit World. After she had presented the pipe to the people, she was about to leave the lodge that had been set up to receive her. And she turned. Now, she was a buffalo who turned herself into a woman in order to interact with the humans. She turned and she looked at the uh, Indians in the tent and she said, Remember, in me there are four ages. In every age I shall return and look in on you. And at the end, it'll be over. Now, what she meant was that, I guess, you know, the, the Lakota, the Lakota believe that there's a buffalo that stands at, at the center of the earth. The buffalo is like the Dharma in Buddhism. And the buffalo stands on four legs. But in every age, the buffalo loses one leg 
and every year it loses one hair. And they're all in agreement now that the buffalo is standing on its last leg and it's very nearly bald. They believe, and this was according to that myth, that with the ending of the fourth age, that the waters will rush in and everything will be destroyed. Now, that's a very interesting thing for people who live in the center of North America to say, because these people have never seen the ocean. The waters will rush in and everything will be destroyed. But this is where Black Elk gets us off the hook. He gets us off the hook by observing that as the waters rush in, with our reenchantment, with our relationship with nature, we can restore ourselves and we can continue and the cycle of ages will begin again at that point, from that point of, of reharmonizing and rebalancing. <clears throat> That's a very interesting myth. I, you know, I believe I wrote about that with Sandy Ingerman in Awakening to the Spirit World. You did. You did. Now, Hank, you know, as I'm listening to you now, I live in a place of great natural beauty, Boulder, Colorado, and I know you're speaking today from Hawaii, another very natural, beautiful place. And I'm curious what you have to say to the person who's listening, who is in a busy city. They may not, you know, at the end of listening to our conversation, walk out into the mountains like I'll have the chance to do or onto the beach like you'll have the chance to do. They're walking out into the midst of, you know, potentially traffic and pollution. And yet you're saying this re-enchantment hinges, if you will, on our ability to connect deeply with the natural world. What would you say to that person? Well, first of all, I lived in Boulder for 10 years. I did my undergraduate work and my graduate work in zoology there between 1959 and 1969. I love Boulder. And every time I go back there, I can't believe that I ever left. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I know that, that area very, very well, like the back of my hand. And for the person who lives in an urban environment, you know, I, I see the mystery in, in small acts that a lot of people miss. Like I'll look at a sparrow hopping along the sidewalk, and I'll see the, the, the breeze riffle the feathers on its back of this small inconsequential bird. And, you know, I'm just thrilled by that. Or I'll feel the breeze come in through the door and I'll think, you know, oh, what have you got to tell me? And, you know, it's a crazy thing, but, you know, very often these breezes will convey information if you turn your attention in their direction. I think it's a matter of paying attention and allowing yourself to be wonderstruck by the beauty and the wonder of what it is to be embodied as a human on this beautiful world. And, you know, so for people who live in concrete and steel surroundings and glass surroundings all day, I remember that when I was a little boy, uh, my dining room window looked out on the concrete wall of the elevator shaft of the apartment building next door. And so I was always looking at this gray wall in the twilight. And I had a, a wonderful imagination, since you brought up imagination as a little boy. And I would project this wonderful image of, a, of living on a tropical island, sort of running away to the South Seas, like Marlon Brando or 
or Robert Louis Stevenson and living on this tropical island. And I held that dream when I was a little boy. And here I am, living on this tropical island in a place that looks very much like Tahiti. You know, I live surrounded by beauty, and I'm growing food all over my land. Breadfruit and coffee and mangoes and papayas and and pineapples and and citrus and all sorts of wonderful things. I think it's a matter of, of paying attention and just allowing your attention to be drawn towards beauty, however that beauty reveals itself to you. I'm very fond of museums. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York was one of my touchstones because my mother took me there when I was a little boy. And so whenever I'm in New York, first of all, I have to go to Central Park to say hello to all of my trees. They're a lot bigger now, a lot taller now than I was when I, they were when I was a boy. And I go to the museum, and I allow myself to be moved by the beauty and the power of the great art that we've created. These are the things that, that, that thrill me. That and reading. I'm a voracious reader. <laughs> At the end of the re-enchantment, you offer a couple of very helpful appendices. One's on the role of the authentic shamanic teacher, and the other is on the three qualities to look for in a shamanic teacher. And I wonder, as a final note, for the person who's listening, who's thinking, you know, I would like to study shamanism. I'd like to find a good shamanic teacher. What should such a person look for? Well, when I encounter a shamanic teacher, I look for three things. The first thing I look for is humility. You know, if you're working with somebody who's being autocratic and demanding and saying, you can't do this and you can't do that, you've got to do it this way, you've got to do it that way, you might be with the wrong person. You know, everybody's got their own way of doing it. And in my experience, the really greatest teachers that I've encountered have all been very humble people. The second quality I look for is reverence. You know, and this isn't, you know, kind of like... Um, uh, some sort of pre-programmed reverence that, you know, is involved in going to church and being reverent. Reverence is a kind of active respect for everyone and everything that you encounter in life. In other words, no judgment. I look for that reverence, and it's it's very, very important to me. The third thing that I look for in a shamanic teacher is discipline, self-discipline. We are to know all that we possess with discipline. And so if you're working with a teacher who has watery boundaries or who violates their students' boundaries, uh, I'm thinking specifically sexually, you may be with the wrong person. There, This is a problem in the transformational community. Uh, it's a problem with the yoga people, the shamanic people. I don't know about the Buddhist community as well because uh, I haven't walked that path in a long time. But I really look it's for a problem. humility, I look for reverence, and I look for discipline. And, you know, the really great shamanic teachers, their job is to help facilitate your path by getting you in touch with your spirits. You know, I see my job is to facilitate this connection between my students and their spirits, their spirit helpers. And once that connection has been made, my job is essentially done. And then my job is to get out of the way. 
It's really wonderful because in the shaman's world, you know, it, it sort of gets you off the pedestal right from the start. It gets you out of the guru trip before you even get into it. So that's just kind of a few words that I would leave with your listener. There are a lot of good shaman teachers out there. You know, Sandra Ingerman is a wonderful teacher. Michael Harner's foundation has many wonderful teachers in it. Everybody's got their own ways of doing it. But this connection with nature and connection with the spiritual essence within nature seems to be the core practice which gets us going. And then once we progress through nature mysticism, we move up the scale into authentic deity mysticism. And we've talked about that in the reenchantment as well. I'll leave that for people to discover on their own. I've been talking with Hank Wesselman, who has released a new book called The Reenchantment: A Shamanic Path to a Life of Wonder. With Sounds True, Hank Wesselman has also written the book The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. And with Sandra Ingerman has co-authored the book Awakening to the Spirit World, The Shamanic Path of Direct Revelation. Hank, you always surprise me whenever we talk. I always enjoy talking to you. It's a wild ride. Thank you so much. Oh, I look forward to crossing trails with you again. Thanks, everyone, for listening. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey.